Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today, we're excited to be recording at the 40th annual spring meeting of the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology, taking place on Zoom. We are delighted to welcome our guests, clinical psychologist, author, and community activist, Dr. Medria Connolly, professor of historical trauma studies at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, author, and current fellow at Harvard University, Dr. Pumla Gobodo Madikizela, psychoanalyst, author, and social activist, Dr. Lynn Layton, and clinical psychologist, author, and community activist, Dr. Brian Nichols. Please go to our website to read more about their many achievements and the focus of their work, www.couchedpodcast.org. Thank you, Billy. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for joining us. It's exciting. We're hailing from around the globe. Our panelists are zoomed in from South Africa, California, Boston. Billy and I are in Brooklyn, New York, and we imagine our attendees are hailing from all over as well. We're extremely grateful to have you here to discuss the topic of reparations. It's a movement that's been gradually gaining and long overdue recognition by our field. You know, regrettably, psychoanalysis as a field has devoted scant attention to applying our concepts of repair to the process of reparations for the historical trauma of chattel slavery in the United States and apartheid in South Africa. But of course, present company excluded, they've been working on this for quite some time. So today we're eager to share the panelists' varied efforts to bridge this gap between psychoanalytic thinking and the reparations movement in the hopes of generating some much needed dialogue and action, not just talk, action too. So we'll begin with the first of the three questions for the panelists, something to orient us. We're asking, could you please orient the audience and us to some of the central aspects of your thought and work on reparations? And you might find yourself joining in with each other to look at what compels and interests you about each other's ideas and work. So we'll hand it over to our panelists. Well, who wants to start? I'll start. (laughs) Thank you. Brian and I have a paper entitled Transforming Ghosts into Ancestors, a Psychological Case for Reparations to the Sentence of American Slavery. And our basic premise is that America is haunted, essentially, and that we are haunted by the ghosts of chattel slavery, which was an unrepaired crime against humanity. And essentially, since this is a 400-year-old haunting, we feel that underlying that haunting is something that we refer to as moral injury, because we fundamentally believe that the country as a whole is suffering from moral injury. Now, the way that we conceptualize ghosts is that they usually signal that something horrific has happened in the past that is unresolved, that the living try to disappear. They also do, Avery Gordon says that they go signal that there is 
a something to be done, that wherever ghosts are present, it's signaling that something needs to happen. For us, that signaling is that something to be done is reparations. Now, we talk about moral injury in terms of having, actually, we use the phrase from Jonathan Shea, his book called Achilles in Vietnam, Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character. And he talks about Vietnam veterans who are suffering from moral injury because they have been forced to participate in or witnessing or they weren't allowed to happen something that violated their moral beliefs. We believe that something similar is happening with this country because although initially our constitution was written for white men who were landholders, we are nevertheless taking them at their word and holding them to the tenets of that constitution. What we basically maintain is that the problem with acknowledging moral injury is that when you do it correctly, that it is accompanied by feelings of shame, guilt, or despair. And that so far, most folks have not been trying to feel that way and instead defend against that by enacting their rage. Carol Anderson calls it white rage. And so whenever there is any movement toward equity, there is this backlash that we get where whites then double down on whatever kind of inequities that have been perpetrated and even go backwards. And I think we are witnessing that today, particularly around voting rights. I think it's a glaring example of what we are referring to. And so essentially, we're witnessing it. And that is the basic tenet of our argument. Thank you, Madria. Umla, looks like you're ready to go next. Yeah, when I first encountered Nedria's and Brian's work, I was really intrigued by the idea of transforming their application of this notion of transforming ghosts into ancestors. Some of you may know that for us in many African cultures, ancestors have a very important role to play in life. They're not the dead. They are not the invisible not only are they present in the life and in the community, they are revered, they are looked up to, they are consulted, they are acknowledged, they recognize. And so the language for me was just so critical in terms of its deeper meaning, the deeper meaning of this idea that here is something that needs to be acknowledged and recognized. It's something that has to be taken seriously, something that affects our lives and we've got to engage with it. We've got to respond to it. In our, in, in our culture, for instance, you respond to ancestors. They're not there and they're put in a shelf. You engage, there are certain rituals every now and again. There are rituals of recognition. You recognize, you know, you gather the community the ancestors are saying X, you do Y in response. So there's a great sort of intersubjective engagement between the ancestors and the community. And that engagement is one that then brings about wholeness, that without that recognition, you cannot be whole. So I really love this notion that they use. In a way, 
it relates to the way that I think about reparations. I begin actually where Medria ended her description about what this means for them. The idea that often when people are filled with shame, particularly people who benefited from an atrocious past, when they are filled with shame, it becomes so difficult for them to engage with the other because shame focuses attention on the self. I'm so ashamed, I'm feeling so shattered and I want to hide my face. And so the hiding of the face ends up hiding from the truth, from all of these issues that actually affect our lives. And it is that hiding that I'm concerned with. And the way that I address that is to speak about the language of reparative humanism, by which I mean that we need, it's a process of beginning with the idea of looking the beast in the eye and facing it for what it is and opening up the space for reaction and responding to what that beast, how that beast hits us, how it lands on all of us, whether we are victims or perpetrators or beneficiaries or bystanders or the implicated others, as Michael Rothberg would say, that all of us, we are in this space where we have the responsibility of listening to how we are affected by this past. And it is in that process of listening that the deeper core of our humanity is touched to an extent that it evokes a sense of caring for the other. Whether it is caring for the other's pain or suffering or caring for the other's feeling of shame. And I try to do this in my work. I think the greater burden, and I use that word deliberately, the greater burden often is on the shoulders of victims because those who benefited from this terrible past are often walking around with this shame. They can't acknowledge it because it's too shameful and they don't know how to do it because they're afraid by virtue of saying, yes, I benefited from this past. Yes, I have a responsibility to repair it. By doing that, they are admitting their role in a history of evil. And so the burden then is turns on the victim, on those who are descendants of, of victims, to kind of open up the space to say, I will hold you. I will hold this space for the containment of even those feelings of shame. And that is when then the sense of solidarity begins, you know, the sense of connecting to one another because you've allowed the other to trust that I will not descend into this abyss of darkness about my past if I dare to acknowledge that, yes, I did benefit, that there's this sense of what lies there is something for me to admit to rather than something for me to run away from. And the burden on the descendants of victims is allowing an opening, the possibility that this other person who sits there will then feel open enough to acknowledge that connection to that history. And that's when, and this is the last thing I'll say in this round, and this is where solidarity begins to build because then there's a sense of trust and the sense of solidarity. Medria 
And Brian said this actually at their last, and this is the reason, this is the important point about solidarity. I think they said something along the lines of, if we work together, if there is this strong sense of solidarity, it's so strong that the push is so strong, the strength is so strong that it pushes those in power to make sure that they do things that are going to bring about transformation. Beautiful. Lynn? Well, I just want to start by saying how honored I am to be here with these folks whose work has been so important to me, mostly in my work over the last several decades, has been looking at what I've called normative unconscious processes, which is the way we tend in relationship to repeat the unequal norms that are structural, racism, classism, sexism, in the clinic. I've mostly worked on in the clinic, but also elsewhere in the culture. What I had not done was to think about what you folks are talking about, the intergenerational, the history. And it was really only probably 10 years ago that somebody in a group, I'm in the psychosocial work group, actually it was Annie Stopford, brought Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And that's really for me where I started with what Pumla was just talking about, what Medria was talking about, what Brian talks about, the crucialness of truth-telling. And so I joined a just beginning movement, a grassroots reparations movement that had grown out of the Ferguson protests and an organization called the Truth-Telling Project. So there it is. Truth-telling is so consonant with psychoanalytic principles that for me, this feels very connected to everything that I do. And this grassroots reparations organization is also guided by the five dimensions of reparations that the UN has put forward, one of which, and this connects to the work that I've been doing and now I'm doing in reparations work, the guarantee of non-repeat, the importance of dismantling systems of racism, structural racism. And structural racism, I think, is very hard for systems thinking in general, I think is very hard for people engaged in our field to think about as focused as we are on the individual. But for me, I think the reading, White Rage, that Medria spoke to by Carol Anderson of this repeated history of Black advancement and white backlash, I think is just so important for understanding why we need to do the work of reparations, both for the history of slavery and for what people have called the afterlives of slavery, redlining, Jim Crow, black codes, and mass incarceration, which, as I said, is sort of where I got began to really think about this uh, and look into and face difficultly with shame, with guilt, this history of ours in the United States. So the work that I've been doing is taking the work of this grassroots reparations campaign, which is very spiritually based, based in the kind of thing that Pumla talks about, Ubuntu, that we are interconnected, we are interdependent. Our work is to heal the world. For me, as a, a Jewish person, that connects with tikkun olam, healing the social body. And my work has been to take what I've gotten from the grassroots reparations campaign into white organizations, faith-based organizations, because that was where we aimed our work and ethically based organizations like Section 9 in Division 39, Psychoanalysis for Social Responsibility, which is a co-partner with the Grassroots Reparations Campaign. And 
I helped sponsor our conference in Ferguson a couple of years ago. So I could talk much more about what the work looks like, but I'll stop here. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Ryan? Well, yeah, I guess it's my turn. Finally um, your turn. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of overstimulated by what I'm hearing. I'm not even sure where to start. But I'll, I'll start with, I think, the ghosts. And I think I relate to the ghosts a little differently. I reflect on my work. I was working gang prevention and intervention in the city of Los Angeles. And it was a multiracial collaboration with great intentions and great funding. And when we would gather in a room together, somehow the process would break down into very stereotypical racialized projections. And I kept trying to understand why that happens. And it felt like I had different metaphors in mind. It felt like air pollution was corrupting us invisibly or ghosts were undermining us because we just couldn't come together. And why did we keep breaking down this way? I saw it in conferences, conferences specifically designed to discuss issues of needing to encounter our racial past. I was at a conference called Slavery Shadow, and it began beautifully in the morning. And I call it a kumbaya moment, people tearful, reflecting on the past and issues. And then in the afternoon, it completely gets undone. Well, the way I really like to say it, I won't repeat it here, but I will say it this way. White supremacy rears its ugly face, and then all of a sudden, you've got a problem. How could this happen in conferences designed to unearth these things? And it's There was something unconscious in the room corrupting the process. I saw that as a ghost. And to me, at the, the core of that ghost, I'll go to Pumla, was shame. I thought shame was in the core of it. I think Medria, for us, has encapsulated shame in moral injury. I think unattended moral injury corrupts our processes. So then I think about what Pumala was talking about, the unity you were talking about. That's when we start to speculate on how do we make this thing better. One of the fundamental elements of reparations is apology. And that's where we rejoin with each other. The, the perpetrator acknowledges the harm. The victim receives that. But I see that as needing to happen at the interpersonal, intersubjective level within the advocacy groups. Because the advocacy groups must be multiracial, in my view. Otherwise, it activates the fears of retribution, of revenge. So the advocacy groups must be unified to then activate the political structures to do what the country or the society needs to do. And that thing is material. And to me, it's so important. Roy Brooks says the material compensation makes the apology real. If it's commensurate, but there's no such thing as commensurate with the harm, but approximates the harm, significant. But it's in that issuing of a material redress of a that is, in Avery Brooks' term, the something to be done. So many times there would be something racial that would happen in the country. And the next thing you see on the late news is it's time for us to have a national conversation. I'm tired of conversation. We're just going to talk about it. We're just going to have a conversation. No. We need to do something. And when you actually start structuring a program to try to repair the economic harm, it is that something to be done. Now we got something to do to fix it. And then that something to be done gives us something that we can rally around and people can feel not just wallow in the shame and try to work through the shame, activate remorse. That's good, necessary. But then I need to feel like I did something to make it better. And I can feel proud of that. Lynn. 
I just want to add something that I'd forgotten that comes from Dave Raglan, who's the leader of this campaign. That I'm, I think he's the person who said it, but he says it frequently, so it's okay. He says that the midpoint between truth and reconciliation is reparations. So I think that speaks to what Brian's saying, that the work of repair has to go on at all levels, but there has to be a national response as well. I was going to say, because we're very clear that this needs to be a national policy, a governmental. I mean, we're not talking about white folks giving money to black people. Slavery was the law of the land. The government made it the law. They did it and they sort of undid it. And so we really need a national movement. We need the government to issue reparations because we hold the government responsible. Because we're looking at it systemically. Right. We have to move away from individuals because it's the system and it's a system that's corrupted us all, all. And it needs to be fixed at that level. I wonder about that, especially thinking about how we see these transgenerational issues. We see them, for instance, in terms of sustaining the divisions sustaining the inequality, that those who benefited from the past, they come out generations later better because they've inherited wealth, they've inherited opportunity, they've inherited privileges. Whereas it's the opposite from people in general terms. It's the opposite from people who are descendants of those on the receiving side of oppression, in your case, descendants of enslavement. Now, We absolutely agree that there has to be a national process, the government, for instance. But for this to be seen to be fair and just, there also has to be a sense in which there is accountability on the level of people who benefited from this past, because that's where the tensions occur when descendants of people who were victims of oppression are living side by side as they do these days because of our drive for integration at schools, for example, universities, that they live side by side or opening up geographic places. So there is often this direct encounter with what this history means on the ground level so that people are witnessing on a day-to-day that what is happening. In South Africa, for instance, There was a call after the Truth Commission ended. There was a call for the institution of a a wealth tax. And obviously the wealth tax would affect, the majority of people who would affect were white people. And there was a huge outcry to the extent that there was. It was a project that did not happen, that did not have any fit in the long term because of this opposition. So that was now in monetary terms. But there was also something as symbolic as a call for beneficiaries of the privileges of apartheid to acknowledge, just in terms of a register, to say, I acknowledge and have this posted in a book that was going to be on the archive of the TRC. Even that could not be received. Only a very small percentage of people actually participated in that project. Now, that is at a symbolic level. Why? Because the majority of people who benefited, the line that they repeat is, I worked hard 
This was not given to me on a plate. I was tired. My parents were tired and so on and so forth. So focusing only on the government, I think it's important that they have their role, but we also have to imagine other ways of engaging at that level of society so that there is some kind of conversation. This is why we witnessed over and over again these repeated acts of racism, both in your country and in ours. Of course, it's it's complex, but part of the source is this sense of shame that if I can't face it, then I project it to another, which is part of what happens in race among racist people. It's this sense of you are bad, you are the terrible one, projecting the anger and projecting, calling people names so that they are the ones who then feel bad. They feel the shame, they feel the humiliation, not me, I'm projecting it. And this is how racism happens. I absolutely agree with you, Pumala, which is why we think of this. This has to come from the bottom up. This is not a top down kind of implementation of a strategy. It definitely has to be a bottom up. And it's also why I really like the concept of implicated subject. Michael Rothberg has a book, The Implicated Subject Beyond Perpetrators and Victims, because the argument that we oftentimes hear is like, well, I never owned any slaves. Like you said, I've worked for everything that I've gotten. No acknowledgement about having been born on third base. So that's rather invisible, self-serving at best. A belief in a meritocracy doesn't exist. Again, that is also self-serving. But with Rothberg's concept of the implicated subject, I mean, he talks about it. Well, you're not a perpetrator or a victim but you benefit from the policies that initiate perpetrators and victims. As long as you are benefiting indirectly, then you are implicated in the structure as it exists. And as such, you have a responsibility to do something about that because you are in fact benefiting from an unfair advantage. And I think in some ways it's a little easier for folks to move into a sense of being implicated as opposed to being just called a perpetrator with folks saying, you are oppressing me. You're an Mm. oppressor. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Language matters in these things. Yes. I just want to cue us. We're actually answering one of our next questions, but I'll name it for the audience and then let it flow. You're already naming the resistances that are encountered in the work, shame, ghosts, right? Fear of being named the perpetrator. As we flow to the next section, hearing more about how you work with these resistances, the ways in which you all have theorized and gotten feet on the pavement to start sharing that would be great. But I know, Lynn, you wanted to jump in. Yes, on that point, because I work with the implicated subjects white people. And thanks to Medria and Brian, I found out about Michael Rothberg's book, which was really very helpful to me. And so I want to underscore both the work. Michael would be very pleased. (laughs) (laughs) He'll be on another episode, maybe one day. Sorry, Lynn. That's okay. 
I do feel that it's really important, as Pumla was saying, as everyone's saying, that you have to work at all of these levels because if people aren't becoming accountable and understanding this, they will rebel against any government attempt to do this. So the campaign started a few years ago that I'm working with. So I started bringing to some mostly all white groups, actually, not mostly all white groups, this work. And the beginning was really the implicated subject kind of work, because most of the people that I was working with, for example, in my secular humanist Jewish organization, Worker Circle, did not come to the United States until like the end of the 19th century. They're very likely to say we didn't own slaves. But we've had some really amazing folks come and talk to us as part of the education process, which I have felt has to be the beginning here. We've done a lot of reading. We had Lottie Lee Dula, who runs the website and organization Reparations for Slavery, come and talk to us about our families and have us start to do the work of understanding how our families have benefited from structural racism. And again, thinking structurally is not the strong suit of this country for obvious reasons. It benefits people not to be thinking structurally. And it's really a problem in our organizations. So to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, that's the piece that I didn't really recognize. I was teaching a lot about the transmission, the reproduction of racism, but not noticing that my institute was all white and was not really a welcoming space to people of color. So the resistances are many. Maybe I'll just speak to a couple now and and maybe some more later. I think one thing that's hard, even when you get past the, or you never get past it, the shame and the guilt, is how to think of things in a reparative framework rather than a charity. What Medria was pointing to, a charity framework, for example, to offer free tuition to people of color at our institute or to do other kinds of work that's to repair the anti-Blackness of our country. People have a really hard time grasping that giving free tuition isn't about charity or that we think the person's going to be offended because, of course, they could pay for it. It's really trying to understand what we owe, a debt that we owe as white institutions for the history that we have benefited from and are are part of. We're trying to sell it to white folks. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. (laughs) And they have to see a self-interest. And I think on Puma's language, it would be to repair the brokenness that's inside you that was required for the perpetration of this crime. Now, that's a hard sell, though. We have another friend in Toronto, Shaquille Chaudhry, who wrote a book, Overcoming Us Versus Them. Deep Diversity, Overcoming Us. Deep Diversity, Uh yeah. But he said recently at a conference he had that so many activists are working against something, against injustice, a problem. But problems ensue in the activist world when we aren't clear what we're working for, not just working against something, we're working toward something. And it requires a vision. So what's our vision? Now, he actually suggests going back to Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community and that this is what is on the other side of reparation, this kind of joining really true equality, which I think is a kind of a foreign notion in a Western mind. But that's what we're striving for. And for the people who are the implicated subjects, it's the fix that brokenness that we've helped you become aware of and that you may now rejoin the community of all people. So it seems to me, as I'm listening and having read your articles, that there's a tension between doing the very important dyadic work 
that Pumla talked about in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and helping people face what feels like unbearable shame, right? And this society level, it's got to be the government who makes the reparations. It's got to be the institutions that offer reparations. And it speaks a little bit, I think, Lynn, to your work on the psychic versus the social, the ways that we attack the link between those two. And I'm just wondering what any of you think about that. Is there a tension or isn't there? What this question evokes for me, two things. One has to do with the work that the Truth Commission did and how important it was. It was important because it was a moment of hope and a necessary moment in the transition from apartheid to democracy. And that was the creation of the TRC. The other way of responding to your question is to reiterate what Brian says about the importance of community, the beloved community. With the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you got people hoping, gathering together and really embracing the work of the day with an excitement that something is being done. There's a goal. We're looking up to something. We're sort of gazing to the stars and we can see what's possible. And this is a process that is going to make it possible. So the tension for me lies there, that the hope that was at the time of the TRC and the tension really is looking at that future now, 27 years later, and actually finding out that it didn't happen the way that we had envisioned it. And so there's something there that you have to talk about, that there was that moment during the transition, it was critical, it was important. And then I think what actually has to be learned from the South African Truth and Reconciliation are the missed moments. And this is not to say the Truth Commission failed, although there are many scholars who write about how the TRC failed. I think that's not the right way of looking at things. The TRC did not fail. If anything, the TRC actually succeeded as a process that was important during a moment of transition. And there are so many lessons to learn from that. However, the important question is what happened after? What was the missed opportunity, both during the TRC and afterwards? Now, we've got the benefit of hindsight. Even when we have the benefit of hindsight, I think that even as we see what could have been done at the moment, we may not even have been able to do it differently because it was necessary in the way that it was done. But now, in terms of lessons from the TRC, in terms of dealing with the project of reckoning, we have to then cast the telescope backwards. Then the question of what does not happen as a result of all that excitement or, I mean, for want of a better term, euphoria about the idea that we shall reconcile and the fact that we now can look back and see it did not happen that way. And I just want to say one last thing. We often look at intergenerational issues from the perspective of victims and descendants of victims. Very rarely do we look at intergenerational issues from the other side. And that's where actually we find some of this rupturing in our societies because it is the younger people. I mean, what we find in South Africa, 
the stories, the public stories that occur, acts of racism, they come mostly from the younger generation. And I think it's time that we really ask and address the question why it is and how do we understand the transgenerational transmission of that insecurity or of that shame, whatever we're going to discover from it. But it's important for us to look at that because that, I think, is where things break down. This is an enormous project that we're undertaking here. And we're trying to reverse centuries of a direction of the way people subjugate each other. And what happened in the truth and reconciliation process was it's just an opening effort to kind of reverse that trajectory. And if not everything was pulled together, that's it's understandable. You're trying to change the course of history is the way I see it internationally. And so then we do try to learn the lessons because really what it was 27 years ago, but in comparison to the long arc of history, it's a blip in time. And we have a moment to kind of sort of add to what happened there. We met Pumbla last year at a conference in, in um, Edinburgh. And some of the things I remember from that was that how emotional and meaningful it was to be in those rooms where the TRC was occurring and how I think healing it must have felt in those rooms. And yet those rooms were packed, but 90, 95% black people, right? So white folks were looking. Exactly. They weren't participating in that way, in that visceral way where they could really engage it. I don't know what they were doing at home with TV. It was on TV, I guess. They were probably watching a soap opera or something. So they missed that opportunity. And then the heartbreaking thing that you said was that you had young white South Africaners saying, we have it harder now than the Blacks ever had it. I was kind of undone by that comment. Now, Brian, and you and Medria's work, you talk about deployed hate. I'm hoping we can get to that. I think there's something very powerful and use a tremendously potentially transformative if one is able to do that. Lynn? Well, I'll just be very brief because I think everyone is really speaking to this with regard to white people. I would heed Brian Stevenson's call to get proximate. Pumla was talking about solidarity, about people living together. We don't live together here. We aren't together here. And Again, connected to what Billy asked about the psychic and the social, it's very easy to dissociate from whiteness when you have no relationship with Black people. And I think that is quite common here and is a big issue in working with white groups around reparations. You want to talk about hate? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Brian. Go ahead. Your timing is amazing. Medrina calls that our hate manifesto. (laughs) But it was really a response to in the work and in in going through the analytic literature and Melanie Klein talking about the drive to repair that happens with infants and mothers and using that as a metaphor to talk about reparations. And then some of the theorists saying, you know, that's all well and good with the mother and a baby and between people, but it's hard to take that process and think it's going to happen between groups that there are processes that occur that undermine the capacity of one group to be reparative toward another group because we project our hostility toward the out-group in the service of group unity with the in-group. And so, therefore, you can't get reparations that way. And I was like, well, damn, I should just go home then. Just take my ball and go home. Forget it. It's over. 
And I just, I can't accept it. I refuse. So I'm trying to find a way. And so I, in thinking about it, I was thinking, maybe we just need to re-own the hate. This reparations project is, in Baldwin's terms, our friend Jeff Prager really brought this forward. It's the politics of love. And I'm really speaking to those of us who are trying to advocate for this, that in that politics of love, we can't get so loving with one another that we then project outward our aggression onto the outgroup and make it harder to re-engage that group. We become so good and so beautiful in our efforts to make a better world that we actually replicate the processes we're trying to address. So in a very simple-minded way, I just said, well, let's just take the hate back in. Let's reintroject the hate and let's sort of loosen our associations with each other where we acknowledge that while we kind of move together in a unified way to make the world better. It's a really, it's kind of simple in a way, but I'm trying something. I'm just not... That's so important. Yeah. I cheer you on, Brian. Absolutely. Your refusal to accept that can I think that's that's what you all need to do. We should refuse, even in the face of the intransigence of right. these problems. Right. Right. And I love that in your effort to try to find a way to love Brian, you're saying let's look at the hate, let's bring in the hate, to use a word that's been used today. Let's have the courage and move out of the denial of the ways in which we experience hate towards each other, right? Otherwise, it's a false self. Let's throw in another analytic phrase there. Absolutely. Just just a quick shout out to my friend, Larry Green, who brought hate to my attention. He wrote an article on hate and counter-transfers. I'm like, Larry, you wrote a whole article about hate? What? (laughs) But I think it's relevant. Thank you. Brian and Medria, you wrote in one of your articles about the very beginnings of white supremacy, which I found fascinating. We often don't really realize the history and how much the government is implicated. I wonder if either of you could talk about that. Brian, go for it. Well, I mean, let's start with Kendi's history in the 1400s and how in justifying enslavement in Portugal, they had to turn these African captives into animals to justify it and, and to get the Catholic Church to go along with it. And to say, oh, we're bringing these Africans over here. They're going to benefit from European culture. We're doing a good thing by enslaving them. And oh, by the way, we're going to make some money too, but that's all right. So that's part of it. The dehumanization that had to happen in the beginning. I really go from the new Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander tells the story of Bacon's Rebellion in 1676 and how this joining of enslaved people and indentured white indentured servants and landowners in trying to regain land it scared the powered people, the king of England. And they said, oh, no, we can't have that. We can't have unity between slaves and indentured servants. No, we have to do something to create a separation. So they instituted the Black Codes to make the distinction between who was a white servant and who was a black slave. And to me, it was a forerunner of water fountains and toilets, whites yes. only. Yes. They threw that line and created white people and black people which now we struggle with. That goes back to the 1600s. Yeah. Yep. And yep. it was a law. Yes. Right. And yes. we're still dealing with the after effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we try to make the distinction between white people and white supremacy. If we don't make that distinction, then it's easy to start talking about, I think, like white devils. But it's right. people who are different from the ideology. Right. And even us African-Americans can get swept up in white supremacy as an ideology. All of us are struggling against white supremacy. 
Oh, we have some questions coming in. So here's a straightforward one. So I keep thinking, where's the money? What about reparations tax? It's really funny because we are always asked that question. Always, because I think it's easier really to kind of focus on that than to stay with the feelings around it. But we remind people, we are not economists. We are psychologists. And so we attempt to stay in our lane because there are a number of economists and attorneys, that's the other groups, those two groups who are looking at the structure, which is why it is so important to have H.R. 40 pass, which is a bill to study reparations, to have those folks on that commission, as well as someone from behavioral sciences to participate in thinking about how that would be structured and what that would look like. And I also want to point out that reparations isn't new. White people have been getting reparations forever. Do you know the Homestead Act? What was that? White reparations. When slaveholders were paid $300 a person for giving up the land and all, they got double reparations. Not only were they paid for each slave that they owned, but then nine months later, their land was given back to them. So they got paid twice. So it's not a new concept. They got uh, the slaves back anyway through convict yeah. leasing. And then, and mm. right, and then they got mm. convict, leasing, convict mm. leasing, absolutely, in Jim Crow. So mm. triple. So it's not new. Let me just say, we're not economists, but I saw an article recently that said our investment in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all of that over the last some years, about $6.4 trillion. So we can find that money for some war. So we have questions that are moving in the direction of what can we do to make this all different. One is wonderful discussion. What can we do to support change? What are the next steps needed to transform? So I'm just going to speak to the first part. The history of asking for reparations also goes back quite a long way to the time right after the Civil War with the request for 40 acres and a mule, which is why H.R. 40 is called H.R. 40. So We've talked about it. I was talking about one of the groups that I work with where we've been educating ourselves, but we have moved to action as well. So for example, we did a letter writing campaign to get the outstanding two Massachusetts delegates, Congress people who had not signed on to HR 40, which by the way, has been introduced every year for over 30 years. So we actually were successful. I mean, I don't know if it was us or what, but the last two of the nine member delegation did sign on as co-sponsors. So action is definitely an important piece of this that unfortunately I didn't connect to back when I was talking about our education work. The education work was to lead up to activism. So that's what needs to happen now. And H.R. 40 has changed itself. H.R. 40 is now has many years of proposals from African-American groups like ENCOBRA and the National African-American Reparations Commission that includes the monetary, absolutely, but also some of the many things that we've spoken to today. Last, Brian, you had a... It's a real quick, we're mm-hmm. talking about this, the beloved community, the community of all people, reconciliation. Our friend in Scotland, Mahala Mihai, political theorist, she writes about the philosophy of apology, that when a harm has been committed, the former perpetrator offers the apology, not contingently. It's not contingent like, I'll give it to you if you forgive me. It's given with the hope of forgiveness. 
But I do the apology because that's what I need to do. To not just heal, try to make it better between us, but really to firstly make myself better, whole. So there's a space between the act of the apology and the possibility of forgiveness. I think that gets to one of the things that is repaired in reparations, just one of the many things that everybody's been pointing to. Sadly, we're at time. I want to thank you all so very much for being here today. And I would like to thank you too. I have one quote from James Baldwin that I wanted to end with. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I hope that our discussion was in the spirit of that. And we're so glad that you all could be here today, our panelists and our attendees and our couched audience. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Thank you.